0: I'm Janae Cummings, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. We're joined today by Hasan Minhaj, a stand-up comedian, senior correspondent for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and star of Homecoming King, a one-man comedy about his experiences growing up as a first-generation Indian-American. Hasan, welcome to Profiles.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So before we get to Homecoming King, which is a show based on your experiences kind of navigating two worlds, um, I want to spend some time talking to you about your life, you, and what led up to this production. Sure. So my understanding is you're a first-generation American. Your parents immigrated from India, um, which has more than a billion people. And yeah, they almost two billion. Yeah, okay, and they immigrated to Davis, California, which maybe has 65,000 people.
1: Yeah, it's up to, like, 80 now. Oh, but yeah, it, look at it grow. Yeah. But at the, to- at the time, I think it was, like, 50, when my dad immigrated in 1982. It was, like, 50,000 people.
0: How did he get there? Why Davis?
1: Um, so what's interesting is, is that my dad's older sister had immigrated in the, like, late 70s. And she had gotten married, and uh, my aunt and her husband ended up sponsoring my dad. To come here to the states, my dad had just finished his PhD in chemical engineering, mm-hmm. and he was he he was teaching as a professor in India. And then he got that call from his um, sister, my aunt, and she was like, "You should you should come." And he was like, "Okay, I'll do it." And just on a whim, he just went and he did it, and he moved here.
0: He just picked up his bags and took off. He
1: picked up his bags and went. Yeah, which is which is really kind of crazy because. I ask him all the time. I was like, "Dad, were you, were you excited to go?" And he was like, "You know what? I actually wasn't. I wasn't super thrilled about it. Like, I know a lot of people were like super gung ho, but my dad's really close to his family, and he he comes from a family of six brothers and sisters. So he was close to all of them. Um, in Uligar, where my family is from, there's this sort of like close knit bond that you have with your family, and even when you like graduate college and get married and have a career." You guys are all within, like, close proximity of each other, and you have that sort of close network. Right. Um, and so he was, like, afraid of losing. He really, really loves that side of life. And his older sister just, her words were powerful enough to be like, no, you have to do this, Nudge me." And he's like, okay, I'll do it.
0: Was he already married when he left?
1: He was not married. So what's interesting is that he ended up coming here in 82, and then he went back um, he had heard some stuff about, you know, he need, He was like, look, I, he was in his early 30s. He needed. To, he was like, I need to get married. I want to get married. And he had heard sort of some, like, buzz in the streets about this girl named Seema, my mom. And <laughs> Seema was, like, the talk of the town. She was, like, the iPhone 7 of Oligar. Like, people like, oh, my God, have you heard of Seema? Like, she's very slim and slender, and her family owns a camera. And my dad's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. So just off of, like, these verbal Yelp reviews, my dad just beelined down to my grandfather's house and just was like I really want to marry her
0: that is spectacular Side unseen
1: Side unseen yeah and they're nine years apart so it's weird because my both my mom and my dad are alumni of the same there's only one university in Uligar. Oh. they're alumni of that same university but if you're nine years apart like you're not walking campus at the same time or like your shared mutual group of friends it's, it's very unlikely that they're the same so it was completely sight unseen it was off of like reputation alone which is kind of which is kind of cool
0: did your dad going to America have anything to do with like the building of this reputation? Like there've got to be a lot of people clamoring after Sema in this in this town. He comes back. Yeah. Says he wants to marry her and somehow yeah. he's the one. Like how does that happen?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty great story because my grandma basically told me that he showed up and he just knocked on the door with his sister he came with his sister and they were like yeah we we want to do this like we're we're down and my mom was at school at the time she was like starting medical school so the way university works there is like you do undergrad and you roll right into your graduate studies so she's in, she's at medical school so she's at school at the time, my dad's like, I heard a lot about this girl named Seema. My name's Najmi. I'm in. Let's do this. Like, I'm ready. Like, I have a Ph.D. I live in California now. Um, <laughs> Davis, technically, but you don't know what that is, but right. California. Uh, so it'll be really great. Trust me. And my grandma initially said, no, like, you're you're coming on a little bit too strong, man. Um, why don't you? Why don't you take a minute to think about it? This is very flattering. Why don't you take a minute to think about it, and we'll let you, you know, come we'll back, let you know. and we can we can t- we can talk about it. Um, and my dad basically walked to the end of my mom's driveway, waited like three minutes, talked it over with his sister, and then walked back up to the door, knocked on the door, and was like, "Yeah, I, w- I want to marry her." So. still sight unseen it was like 180 seconds he's like yeah I thought about it let's go let's do this it reminds me like the way he decided to marry my mom was the same way uh, I bought my first iPod remember when the first iPods came out yeah and they were like 500 bucks it was like a big purchase this is when people still had mp3 players and cd players but i remember my I, I had a job at office max and i had saved up money but my dad was like i'm not going to just let you spend 500 of your dollars on this thing so he took me to art and fair mall we walked into the apple store and i remember like picking it up i was about to buy it and my dad pulled me outside of the apple store and was like are you sure you want to buy this thing it's 500 dollars. and i was like yeah i'm sure then we walked back into the apple store and we bought the ipod The same way I bought my first iPod was the same way my dad got married.
0: But he had all those great reviews. He was ready to go.
1: Yeah, he was ready to go.
0: So Davis is, I mean, a pretty small city in comparison to Aligarh, really, you know, a lot of places in the country. And it's maybe 70 percent white with, I assume, probably a pretty low Muslim population. What was it like there? And for you as an Indian and as a Muslim, and when did you realize maybe you were different from the other kids?
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, it was the percentage there, you know, since since we moved there, there's been because of the university, there's been a lot more influx of sort of diversity mm-hmm. um, through, you know, pr- professors and families and then also like technology and jobs. Companies like HP and stuff like that are now based in, in, in Intel. They have like offices now in Folsom in Sacramento and nearby areas. So now their the population is, is more diverse. It's still not, you know. Super, super diverse, but it's, it's a lot more than when I was growing up. And, yeah, like I remember the first time I kind of like realized I was different was when um, I was in kindergarten and I felt my first uh, love was this girl named Janice Malo, And I went up to her in the playground and I was like, Janice, I love you. And she was like, you're the color of poop. Um, and that was like my first memory with the girl, which is pretty wild. Like that's your that's your introduction to love and uh, racism. That'll
0: scar you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Cuz it's crazy cuz you're just like, "What?" No, like you're looking down at your skin, you're like, "Oh my god, it's not rubbing off." No. Yeah. You know, you're just like, oh, what happened?" Um it, it's very it's very freaky as a as a, as a child. Um but then also, you know, like kids are very blunt. Um they'll just be like, "Ah, that that's what you look like." But that was sort of like the first uh memory where I was like, "Oh, yeah, like this is a uh, a fair and lovely world and I'm going to have to navigate accordingly." Were there any other situations like that growing up? Um yeah, I remember, you know, there was... I'm lucky that, you know, my narrative, much like a lot of first-generation kids who are, like, navigating between two worlds, like, the the two worlds that they they live in at home and then the, the, the world they live in outside of home, at school or at work, was that at least, you know, I didn't... I wasn't, you know, harbored with gun violence or gangs or stuff like that. It was right. just, you know, it was bullying and stuff like that that just happened at school. Um, and... It was, I think, during a time where uh, political correctness towards brown minorities definitely probably wasn't respected. Um, I remember like in in middle school and in high school, yeah, like you could kids would openly make fun of gay or um, Asian kids or Indian kids or Hispanic kids just just openly like it was just a thing. There kind of was no recourse to it. We were all the clownable minorities. Like, it's it's like you could kind of make a joke about it or you could kind of pick on them because of that reason. It wouldn't face a lot of social recourse.
0: Did your parents ever have anything to say about that?
1: I never told them. I just – I would not tell them. Um, so, like – I remember um one time, you know, when I was in high school, I was like trying out for the basketball team and I I saved up my money for these sneakers and I, and I I I got I got these sneakers and um I was about to wear them into tryouts. And I'm about to put them on before I got into the gym and I was like, "No, no, these are way too nice." They were the Nike Air Foam Posits. They were Penny Hardaway's shoe.
0: Yeah, I remember. And it that. was
1: like a signature shoe. They were really nice. They looked like they looked like these like cool moon boots and they were foam, so they like shaped to your feet. I'm a nerd about shoes, but like I really loved them. And I remember stepping onto the basketball court and I'm like, no, these are way too nice. Like these are way too nice to wear out. So I put them in my locker and then I wore my old shoes and I wore those to tryouts. And I was in the eighth grade at the time. And so eighth graders, ninth graders and 10th graders, they all sort of like try out together. So the middle school, the freshman team and like the JV team, they try out back to back to back. And then at the end of the night, everybody's parents sort of pick them up and it's a bunch of like in the parking lot. It's all these, you know, imagine these like 12 to 15 year old, Sort of pubescent alpha male, you know, guys like trying to just like wait for their rides home. But you know, people are talking about all sorts of crazy stuff that they were doing, and like, oh, I did drugs for the first time, or like, I was with this girl, and like, it's very broy and sort of douchey. And we're standing there, and this guy, Tommy Wilson, comes up to me, and I had I had put away my old shoes and put on my new shoes, and um, you know, we're all sweaty, I'm drenched, and and I'm, my, my feet are kind of wet. Comes up to me, he's like, oh, dude, Hassan, I love those shoes. I'm like, oh, my God, Tommy Wilson's talking to me? And he's like, yeah, bro, I love them. And I was like, oh. He's like, where'd you get them? And I was, like, really excited. I was like, oh, my God, Tommy Wilson is talking to me. I'm like, oh, I got them from Nike Outlet. Tommy, you can get them. Like, I know they retail for 150 but, like, now they're, like, 120 And he's like, no, I don't think you got them from Nike Outlet, dude. I think you got them from the bathroom. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, dude, you got them from the toilet. And... Everybody started just like oh, laughing, no. like all the JV guys. And basically what happened was while the underclassmen were trying out, he broke into my locker, took the shoes out, peed in them, put them back in my locker, and then I wore them. And then in front of everybody, he just just you know started making fun of me. Um, and then my dad's car pulled up, and I got in the car, and we just drove home in silence, you know, like we usually do. And um, I got home, and then I just threw the shoes in the trash can, and I never wore them again. Yeah. So there were memories like that where it was hidden. These were like my secrets that I wouldn't I wouldn't tell my parents. But there was one time I remember specifically in high school where it was public, where both me and my dad had to reckon with the realities of like living with the American dream. Mm -hmm. And it was after 9-11. So I was a sophomore. When 9-11 happened, um, I'm at home and my, my dad had this rule where was like we would all have to like eat dinner together. Like that was like one of his rules. And I, and I actually like really respect him for that. Um, so we're all sitting around the dinner table. And this is during landlines. I didn't have a cell phone at the time, even though kids did. And I there used to be this thing when whenever a school friend would call the house, I would always make sure I rushed to the phone to pick it up before my parents. Because one time a girl called the house and um, <laughs> my dad picked up the phone before me. And this girl, Jess, called. And she was like, oh, hey, is Hassan there? And my dad's like, who is this? He's like, Jessica. And he's like, oh, okay. Why are you calling? (laughs) She's like, oh, I have a question for Algebra 2 Trig. So I was wondering if Hassan was there. And my dad was like, why don't you ask me, and then I'll ask Hassan. (laughs) And I was like, oh, like I'm not going to let that ever happen again. So whenever the phone would ring in the evening, I would just sprint in my socks. We had tile. Like, sometimes I would eat it. Like, I would sprint that. I would try to, like, push off of my socks on the tile so hard to sprint to the phone to get to it, just in case it was a girl, right? <laughs> I rush. I sprint to the, the the phone. And I almost, like, I almost face plant on the table. But I, like, I somehow, like, stumble up and I grab the phone. My dad is super su- suspicious. So he's, like, he sees me sprint to the phone. So he's, like, I know a girl. He's probably talking to a girl. So he gets up to checkmate me, and he grabs the other phone. And uh, he's like, hello? Um, And there's these guys on the other end of the phone, and you can hear them. They've sort of, like, distorted their voice. And they're like, hey, hey, where's Osama? And my dad's like, what, what? Yeah, where's Osama? I was like, I I don't don't understand what you're saying. You know, he has an accent. He's just, he's not following what's going on. And I can hear, like, a group of guys, like, eight or nine dudes that are on the phone just like laughing and then they're talking through this like voice changer thing I'm telling camel jockey tell me right now where is Osama and I'm holding the phone and I feel like embarrassed and I feel like ashamed and I feel kind of scared you know and then my dad's like I don't know what you're talking about and he hangs up and I remember like hanging up And really feeling embarrassed, like, that I have a—that I am brown, that I am Muslim, that I have a dad that doesn't speak the language well, that um, I basically just live a life where I'm open to attacks like that. Nobody has my back. And I felt embarrassed. I wish I I could be anybody but myself. Then I felt humiliated because at the same time, I'm also—I also grew up, like, in an Indian household. And I basically let eight or nine dudes just roast my dad, who pretty much sacrificed everything for me to have a better life. Just let them verbally assault him and call him names and laugh at him. So I was embarrassed for being a coward. We sit back down and um, we're eating dinner and he doesn't say anything about it. I don't say anything about it. And then we hear a thud outside and we run outside and uh, there's shattered glass all over the driveway. And two of our cars were parked outside, and they had shattered all the windows to our car. And uh, my backpack was in one of the cars, so I I run out, my dad runs out, and now I'm, like, really pissed. And I reach in to grab my backpack to see if they stole anything out of my backpack. And I didn't have anything. Fortunately, they didn't steal anything. But as I reached out of the car, I cut my arm open on the broken glass and i remember just being so angry and i look at my dad and my dad's just being super calm and he's grab he grabbed like a, a jaru. a jaru means like a, a sweep it's like he's like sweeping up the glass and i'm like i'm really upset and i'm like dad why why aren't you upset like this is this is bs this is like like they were they outside like what what's going on and my dad said something in Urdu that's pretty powerful and he goes uh which means uh, this is the price we pay for living here. And when I looked into his eyes, he he didn't have, like, regret on his face. It was very, like, matter of fact. You know, this is sort of the cost we pay for the American dream. Um, And uh, I had a lot of anger during that time, to believe it or not. Like, I, I I didn't just think of it calmly or pragmatically the way he did. But that's where I realized that we sort of look at things in two very different lenses. Because I actually, in a weird way, I felt like I didn't deserve that. And my dad is like, well, this comes with the territory for us being here.
0: Is some of that perspective perhaps um, fueled or maybe caused by the different way that, that he was brought up or maybe the situation that he came from?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. My My father, he grew up. Um, In 1947, India was was uh, sort of, uh, you know, liberated and then partition happened. Um, So after India's liberation from Brit from the rule of Britain, it was divided into uh, that, that 47 was the year of partition. I'm sorry. So that was the year where India was divided from between India and Pakistan and Muslims in a mass exodus went from India to Pakistan. But many stayed. And my grandfather, who was a small small shop business owner, decided to stay. And during that period of time, Muslims very much so were marginalized in India because India became Hindustan, the, the, the home of the Hindus. Pakistan became the home of the Muslims, ostensibly. Now despite the fact that India still has one of the largest Muslim populations in the world at over 250 million, that's just in India alone, um, it still is a Muslim minority country. So. The things that he dealt with growing up coming out of partition, he dealt with, he witnessed, he saw, he saw friends, he saw family friends as businesses that were burned down. He saw, you know, and heard and read about, you know, violence that was happening between Hindus and Muslims. Mm -hmm. This was a very palpable thing, and it still exists to this day. Um, You've heard of the riots in Gujarat and et cetera. And there are extremist parties within India that are xenophobic, that are saying, you know, hey, India is is the home of Hindus, Muslims, don't you know, belong here. So his perspective was shaped by that, that you're lucky to be alive, that you know, be grateful for your survival and do everything you can to minimize risk. I remember at a very young age he told me to, you know, don't talk about religion, don't talk about your identity, don't talk about don't talk about politics, don't talk about anything that it that could, you know, ruffle feathers. And what's interesting is is I grew up in America and Everything that we're taught and that we're read, that I read during that period of time, specifically that year of high school, 10th grade, was U.S. government, is about the U.S. Constitution and what our inalienable rights are and how, you know, the founding fathers wrote this code, you know. And I really started to believe. I remember that's when I really started to get into politics. And I was like – I realized in that moment, I was like, oh, my God, the place where I'm from, India – it's one of the oldest civilizations in the world, India, China, Africa. They're very old civilizations. But this place that I'm from, that I'm lucky to be from and be born in, America, is one of the greatest social experiments of the modern era. And I actually had the audacity. I would bump heads with my dad a lot. I actually really believed. I was like, no, I, I believe like I'm equal. Like, I believe like, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Like, it's written into the code that this country is based on. and This is not right. This is not fair. My dad would always tell me to just, hey, these things are going to happen to you, so work twice as hard. But to me, I always heard that as, hey, work twice as hard to ask for half as much. And to me, I was like, no, if I'm going to work twice as hard, it's because I'm going to have the audacity to ask for twice as much. And that's where we really had a lot of sort of butting of heads. And I don't know what the right answer is. Is it survival or is it aspiration for better? I don't know.
0: So I think anyone who's a first-generation American or has friends who are, they know strict parents can be with their kids. I mean, you're talking about it a bit here with your dad saying, you know, minimize risk and don't do certain things. And I think that really comes to bear, particularly in high school. How did your parents deal with all of those, all of our typical American traditions like prom and football games and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. So um, my dad was the eldest son from his family. I was like his eldest son and only son. So his rules, like, growing up were, like, super simple. It's, like, um, no fun, no friends, no girlfriends. You can have fun in med school. Like, that was his MO. Like, if he could yeah. get that tattooed on me, he, would, he probably would have. Um, but he probably wouldn't have because tattoos are very impractical. But that was really his MO. And it, it's such a lie, too. Like, oh, because it, it, it never gets popping in med school. Like, you, you, I've oh, never no. seen guys in residency being like, oh, my God, life is so amazing right now. But even then, I remember, like, going in for, like, a, a, a checkup with my dentist. And my dad was like, look, if you don't do medicine, you could always do dentistry. And my and my my dentist, Dr. Gary Baroni, I owe you this. This is why I'm a comedian. I remember him, like, sitting with me. I'm, like, 19 or 20, and I had just started comedy. And he was on the tail end of his career. He's like, look, kid, like, do what you want to do. Like. Yeah, like I lived a great life. Things are great, but he's like, you don't want to be staring in people's mouths for the rest of your life unless you really <laughs> want to do it. Trust me. And then my dad was I, I, my dad was in the room with me, and I'm like, see, Dad, see, see what Gary, see what Doctor Brony is telling me right now. And my dad was like, Gary, what are your hours? And he's like, well, I work three days a week. He's like, see, Hassan, see, he works three days a week. <laughs> he works three days a week. And he makes a great living. And I was like, got it. Touche, dad. Touche. Um, but, yeah, so it was a big struggle to, like, even go to things like matinee movies on weekends. Because he would just be like, why are you going? What's the point? It, he really was about bottom line. I sacrificed everything to be here. I'm away from all my brothers and sisters. I'm here now. You're my only son. You really are, like, a first-round draft pick. Be very aware of the privilege that you have. And your cousins, like Sahil and everybody else who's back— back in India, who has to compete and study in a country of 1.7 billion people, you have this tremendous opportunity. Do not mess it up. Like, be grateful and add something to this country. And I respect that. Um, but it really simple things like going to the movies or going to school dances or having a girlfriend was, like,
0: a real problem. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is comedian Hassan Minaj, whose one-man show, Homecoming King, takes place at Bloomington's Buskirk Chumley Theatre on September 11th. So I think most anyone who doesn't know you from The Daily Show may know your story about high school prom. Um, you Correct. talked about it on the Moth Radio Hour. You talked about it on yeah. NPR's All Things Considered. Can you take us maybe briefly through that story?
1: Sure, yeah. So when I was a senior... There was this girl who had transferred uh, to our school from Nebraska. Her name was Bethany Reed, and we were in AP Calc together. And she sat behind me, and you know we were in Calc together, and we really hit it off. And um, we would talk to each other really late at night on AIM. I don't know if, if oh, this yeah. dates, AOL Instant Messenger, which is a lot. I mean, people use Gmail now and stuff like that um WhatsApp or whatever but AIM was really big.
0: No, that was um, everything. And it's,
1: and it was everything and you would stay up late at, late at night and you would chat. And the thing is is that our internet was connected to the phone. So it would we would talk during hours where you know phone calls wouldn't be coming in or my parents wouldn't be on the phone. So we would talk like till the wee hours of the night like AIMing back and forth and she knew nothing about like sort of the Davis High social hierarchy. So she didn't know about the windows getting smashed in or the The shoes getting peed in or stuff getting stolen from me or getting beat up or being called a camel jockey or a dune coon or all the – she didn't know about this stuff. She just thought I was, like, funny and and, and sort of, like, charming and stuff like that. And she really liked – my AIM game was really tight. (laughs) So we hit it off, and she starts inviting me over to her house to study. I go over to her house, and eventually, like, she's like, hey, we should go over to your house. So I invite her to my house. And this was, like, a big deal. She was one of the first – school friends that I invited over, and it was a big deal to me because that's not something you normally do. You didn't, I, didn't wanna, I was very insecure, and I didn't want to open myself up to sort of ridicule from sure. uh, people at school, uh, but I just felt like she was different, and um, long story short, our teacher, uh, Calc teacher Mr. G, wanted us to live well-rounded lives outside of school, so one day during spring semester, he was like, hey, um, I am making it mandatory for everyone to go to prom. And i was like no way there's no way this is happening and then he pulls down the whiteboard and it was a bracket with everybody's name on it it was basically like march madness for nerds he's like no everybody is going to prom and as the weeks went by everybody got dates and then a few days before prom the last two names on the board were hasam and bethany reed class goes nuts and i'm so nervous because i'm like there's no way I could, I, i'm not gonna be able to go to this dance bethany knows this too we had talked, like you know she knew my situation at home Bell rings. We're walking outside, and she comes up to me, and she asks me. She was like, hey, listen, you know, ever since my family moved from Nebraska, I was wondering, um, will you go to prom with me? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course. And uh, night of prom rolls around. I sneak out of my house. I bike over to her place, and I, I ring the doorbell. And her her mom answers the door, and I look over her shoulder, and I see this guy... Um, jeff burke putting a corsage on bethany's wrist and you know bethany's mom is like oh my god honey did did bethany not tell you Uh, what do you mean and she's like oh you know we love you we think you're great but you know uh we have a lot of family back home in nebraska and you know we're gonna be taking a lot of photos tonight um so we don't think you'd be a good fit and you know do you need do you need a ride home you know mr reed can give you a ride home and uh that's sort of the crux of the, the show. This mm-hmm. it, It's this love story of, uh, my love story with America, the American dream, and my first love in America, Bethany, and um, the price of the American dream. And it follows my story and her story and how, you know, things shape. And we sort of explore uh, race and class and um, and the American dream in the show.
0: So, after, you know, you get out of high school, you get to college, you go to UC Davis, then you get into stand-up comedy. How did that happen?
1: Well, so I I got into comedy because in high school, there was one thing that my dad actually did let me do, and it was speech and debate. And I really liked speech and debate because I really love history, and I really loved um, specifically, like... I really I, I, I really loved the, the way, like, the founding fathers founded our country and the debates about how, you know, I really loved all that stuff. And speech and debate was a great way to take any argument, and you'd have to argue both sides, whether you're for or against it. And I really loved that. It was really awesome. Um, and I loved doing it through, you know, through speech. And then in college, like, really high-speed internet was popular, and so... I didn't have cable growing up, so I didn't really know what stand-up comedy was. And then a buddy of mine had downloaded all the stand-up comedy, and he was like, "Hey, do you want to watch some?" And I'm like, "No." Like, (laughs) I remember stand-up comedy was the stuff that they would do on Seinfeld before Seinfeld started the episode. Remember, like, Jerry would be standing in front of like the brick background. He's like, "What's the deal with laundry?" And I'm like, "This is the worst part of the show. Like, get to the show." He's like, "Laundry's crazy," and I'm like, "No, this is so dumb." I was like, that's what stand-up is. But then he had downloaded Chris Rock's Never Scared, and I watched that, and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. He's talking about the war in Iraq. He's talking about the Bush administration. He's talking about, like, his relationship with his wife, his kids, like, really, really, like, raw, real stuff. And I was watching it, and it clicked in that moment. I was like, oh, my God. This is funny speech and debate. Stand-up comedy is just presenting an argument in a funny way. And it just sort of clicked for me and it was just this lightning bolt moment where I was like, I got to do this. I have to do this. And that's when I started to like go deeper into like your rocks, your Lenny Bruce's, your uh, Richard Pryor's, Bill Hicks, like got really got into sort of that stuff. And I was like, Oh man, like these guys are, they're the great sort of um, philosophers on like modern human existence. Um, They just do it in a funny way. And then that's when I also sort of got into, like, political satire. So, you know, Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert, stuff like that.
0: So it seems like your comedy really touches on racism, ignorance, and the kind of general idiocy of the world, I guess. Has this always been what fuels your material?
1: Um, Yeah. It's – I didn't really – like, when I first started doing comedy, like, my, my dad was pretty blunt with me. He's like, uh, you've never been funny. So I don't know why you're doing this as a career. And –
0: it could have been a way to get you to med school. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But you know what? Like, I actually kind of do agree with my dad. I'm not a wig guy, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of, like, comedians that, like, can, like, put on wigs and do voices and characters. And, like, they're really funny. I have a lot of respect. And I actually admire, like, a lot of, like, the, the guys that I can see that can do all these different char- I mean, they're pretty awesome. Um, the thing that I know that I do, I have had since I was a kid was um, I've had this thing where I'm like, hey, this is not adding up. Like, this isn't right. And um, am I crazy? Am I, like, the only one that sees this? And comedy and satire specifically are a great way. It's just a great tool to talk about that. You could write think pieces, but comedy is just a really, really... It's a really, really succinct, powerful way to, to talk about stuff like that.
0: So you are maybe john stewart's last correspondent hire maybe one of the last yeah
1: it was the last yeah
0: and now you're first. crushing it with trevor noah um did this gig totally change your life
1: <laughs> yeah it really did you know i i was doing stand up for a while um the day i got hired i had been doing stand up 10 years 1 month and 9 days so it was it was um it was a long time you know it was a good it was a good chunk of time and um it, it was always one of those things where, you know, when you watch a show like The Daily Show, the cast of Correspondence is only five. Yeah. Six, you know, and when you look at the cast, the people that stay on the show, they stay on the show for a long time, you know, like Jason Jones and Samantha B were on the show for like 10 and 12 years, respectively. Uh, Colbert was on the show for eight years. John Oliver's on the show for eight years. Uh, Jessica Williams, who recently left, she was on for four. Like, it's a position where, you know, you kind of have quite a bit of, You know, tenure. Mm -hmm. Um, There are exceptions to that. You know, like Olivia Munn or Josh Gad. They were there for like a super short period of time, then they like went off to go be movie stars. But um, for me, I I had always dreamed of like being on the show. But it was like there has to be an opening, so to speak. And when Michael Che left to go do Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, they were looking for a correspondent. And I remember just being so terrified to submit for the show and it wasn't that oh I I don't think I would have anything to add but I remember telling my um, fiance at the time what if I submit for this thing and it's something that I really want and then you don't get it Um, it's not like there's a lot of great gigs in the entertainment business of like oh you know would you want to be in this movie but but you know how when it's that one thing where you're like oh no if I did this like I think I think this could be really the thing where I could really shine and do something special here. And if you don't get that, then you, you don't.
0: You're yeah, devastated. It, it was
1: Yeah, devastated. Yeah, devastated. And um, it, it ended up working out. And I'm very lucky because I'm very lucky and fortunate.
0: So... Being on The Daily Show has allowed you more opportunities, such as earlier this year, you addressed the Radio and Television Correspondents Association dinner. Um, mm-hmm. You spoke for maybe 20, 25 minutes and you spent probably three quarters of it just joking about reporters and legislators and their kind of inaction. And then, which I think is what the audience expected from you. And then right. all of a sudden you pivoted and you went right into gun violence and their complicity in it.
1: I I don't even know how to pivot here, to be honest with you guys. (laughs) You know, um, what we saw in Orlando was one of the ugliest cocktails of the problems that we still see here in America. A cocktail of homophobia, xenophobia, lack of access to mental health care. And sheer lack of political will. And um, all of us satirists, we've all been yelling out, crying out for change. But the sad reality is that we are all complicit in what happened.
0: What was that moment mm-hmm. like?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was really interesting. So I had gotten this offer to do the Congressional Correspondence Dinner, and. Uh, I was like, this is great. It was, it, you know, it was like the J.V. White House correspondent, Center. <laughs> right. like White House Correspondents is for like POTUS and the president. Um, but what's interesting is, is that in the work that I was doing on The Daily Show, a lot of times, and I don't think the American public really thinks about this. A lot of stuff that ends up happening, a lot of the hot button issues that are happening in this country do boil down to Congress. Yeah. And, you know, the president is only one part of our political system. Congress dictates a, – it's, it's a give and take between the two. And Congress really does you know, dictate a lot of what ends up going through. And a lot of things that we deal with, whether you – know, think about our – uh, um, think about a lot of our hot-button issues, um, gun control, transgender bathrooms, um, raising the minimum wage. These are nitty-gritty state issues that your local members of Congress are going to shape. I felt like, oh, this is an amazing opportunity to talk about this. And then Orlando happened, and it was a very, very – it was crazy because I was set to speak 72 hours after Orlando. And what we saw with the Omar Mateen shooting as I was like – I was feeling so many mixed emotions and feelings Yeah. because there, were, there was like three or four things that were just brewing in my mind, right? This was one of the largest mass shootings we've had in American history. It was done with assault weapons. The guy who did it was a closeted homosexual from a Muslim upbringing. And I had to unbox all these different feelings. And I wanted to take personal accountability and be like, man, in my life growing up, going to Sunday school or, you know, meeting, meeting, you know, you you meet, you know, Indian, South Asian, Middle Eastern families at like these like family functions and stuff. Do I think I've made a safe space? Have I done everything to fight for a safe space for LGBTQ, Muslim, South Asian Americans, Middle Eastern Americans to have that safe place here in America? I've tried. I wrote an open letter with Reza Aslan fighting for, you know, LGBT support when the SCOTUS decision happened. Mm -hmm. But there's more I could do. And I wanted to take an opportunity to, hey, take personal accountability there, but then also pivot and be like, well, you know, Congress, let's talk about, let's talk about the gun control situation. And I know it's not funny, but I had a rare opportunity where I know, you know, Trevor, Oliver, Sam, we were all sort of speaking our opinions out into our base. And it's great. And those things get traction online. And it's, it's really nice to hear people go, yes, thank you for saying that. But this was a rare opportunity where I could look, you know, Mitch McConnell in the face and say, hey, we need to pass this. You know, you could look at Trey Gowdy in the face and say, "No, this is this is a problem." Um, and I was really terrified. I didn't know if I was going to get invited back. I didn't know, but I, I knew that I would have lived with a lot of regret had I not said that. And I didn't know how it was going to go. When I did it that night, it was pretty icy in the room. It was mm-hmm. pretty cold. Yeah. I got off stage and I just I just got out as fast as I could. I did not go to the after party or anything like that, but. I just, I just felt like I had to say what was in my mind and what was in my heart.
0: Did you hear from anyone um, who was at dinner, dinner afterwards?
1: You know, Governor Kasich a- actually came up to me. So you can see the dais. You can actually see this on the C-SPAN feed. You can see the dais. And then there's an exit out behind the sort of the, the podium and, and the dais where we were sitting. Mm-hmm. And so I got up and I motioned to my wife. I was like, we got to get out of here. Um, and John Kasich actually got up and grabbed me. He pulled me to the side. And he actually said something really nice. He was like, hey, man, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and, uh, you know, those are really powerful words. But I want you to know that, you know, every member of Congress isn't just bought by the NRA. You know, some of us, we, we are legitimately here to try to do good work. And I want to let you know, in my state, specifically Ohio, which is an open carry state, any time any form of gun legislation is raised, I hear calls to my office in a 10 to 1 ratio. Ten coming from people that are gun owners saying, Mr. Kasich, do not, do not, do not take away my guns. Mr. Kasich, do not, do not, do not ban AR-15, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. Ten calls to every one person being like Mr. Kasich please please pass this legislation so he's like I'm a representative of the people so I am listening to the people of my state and I'm trying to answer their needs and you know it was tough because on one hand I was like I hear what you're saying Um, but at the same time you know you guys serve as our leaders to provide landmark decisions to move our society and civilization forward. And you may live in a state where overwhelmingly people are like, there should not be transgender bathrooms. But as a representative and person that is helping to adhere our civil liberties across the board, you might have to have the guts to stand up and say, I know the people are saying this, but this is what is technically right. It's a really tough thing. It's a really tough thing because to what extent are you just this demagogue that just, hey, I know better than the people? Mm-hmm. And then to what extent do you actually listen to the people and you're serving the people? So I actually respect John because he took the time and Mr. Kasich took the time to, for us to – but I think that's that's important. Having that dialogue was important. And so as soon as we finished talking, um, I, I, I got out of there.
0: But that seems – I don't know know John Kasich well, only what I've seen on TV, but he seems like the kind of person who would do that, like who would stop you and try to have a reasonable discussion. And it seems like a lot of the problem is that no one else is willing to even have the discussion. They're not willing to confront those issues with you at all.
1: Yeah. My biggest issue, you know, I'm I'm working with – so on the the show that we're doing, I'm also working with this guy, Rick Famuyiwa, who directed Dope, this movie Dope, and he's now directing the new Flash. The movie is amazing. Which which is amazing, and, and Rick and I we really bond because Rick is Nigerian American, and the story of Malcolm Adekwanji and Dope is very similar to the story of Hassan Minhaj and Homecoming King. It's like first generation kid navigating sort of race and class and and all these things in his his own dreams. Mm-hmm. Malcolm wants to go to Harvard. Hassan wants to like fall in love and like and and live his own life on his own terms. Right. Rick really wanted to get you know wanted to help me and we, you know, we've had this great relationship with this project because he said something really powerful to me. I said, Rick, why, why you know, you're so busy. You're like doing this like big studio. And why do you want to do this? And he was like, I want to work on stories that have nuance to them and where the collateral damage doesn't always have to be death. And I thought that was really powerful because why does it take Orlando for us to finally have these discussions? Or why do we have to have discussions about police brutality and accountability and Black Lives Matter when teenagers are shot or when a man's spine is shattered in the back of a police car and he dies? Why do we have to have it then? And the the really tough discussions aren't whether or not justice should be served when a man dies or doesn't die because those things are pretty clear. It's very clear. If you have a conscience, no person should die that way. The tougher things in our day-to-day nuance, the other 364 days of the year, you know, it's navigating these microaggressions that happen to us day-to-day where we're either where we're complicit in these things. And that that's the thing that I think was is is really powerful to me. It was powerful to me about the the RTCA speech, because it's like, hey, you know, we're going to a couple weeks from now, we're going to You know, we're going to forget about this. But are we going to continue? Are you guys going to continue to fight the good fight and to pass some legislation to make it tougher to get these weapons? And in regards to, you know, Homecoming King, the thing that scared me the most was Bethany's father was actually a retired judge from the state of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm older and I I do this for like a living and I, I, I do stories about the criminal justice system. I thought to myself, man, this guy is the arbiter of truth and justice. Yeah. How many cases went his way and where he was supposed to sit there objectively? How many men of color, how many of those cases came to his desk? And did he bang the gavel objectively or not? Man, all, all you know, a brown kid just wanted to go to a dance with his daughter. So you're telling me in a 50-50 situation he would be determining and he would be ruling fairly? Right. I, I don't know. And I think those questions, those are the things that I'm trying to explore in a deeper way through this small story.
0: Has comedy helped you explore these situations more deeply? Mm. Do you think that's, that's at all kind of honed these skills?
1: Yeah. You know, the thing that was like sort of like a game changer for me was like working with John uh, Stewart for like the first few weeks when I was hired. When we go into those morning meetings, you're supposed to pitch these ideas. And I would come in just pitching jokes and John like sort of like was like you know, hey, hey don't, don't don't worry about that I know you're funny what's your take and like Janae this is that's like the million that is the priceless thing I've learned from The Daily Show he's like what is the what is the ironic or satirical take that that shows the injustice of this whole situation people when people tell us on the daily show you guys do news it's like no, no 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 the news does news we provide a take and i take i think you know i take great pride in the takes that we've provided over the years and if you have a great take or great angle it totally opens up the discussion behind the news story and it becomes that much deeper so like one of the stories that I did recently where I was like, oh, I think this is a really great take and if you yes and this, you can really see the the injustice that's happening here. I was at the Republican National Convention and I did this piece called the called Hassan's farewell tour. Yeah, I saw that. And basically it was like, hey, if Trump wins, hey, I got to say goodbye to all the states that I'm, I'm never going to get to go to. So I go up to all these delegates and I was like, hey, you know, um what's Nebraska like? And they're like, oh, Nebraska's like and I'm like, oh, that's great. Um I, I'd love to go. I'm like, oh, we, we'd love to have you. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. And they're like, why? And I'm like, oh, well, because you're candidate. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, your candidate, you know, already wants a total and complete shutdown of all Muslims entering the country. He wants a registry for Muslims. What do you think is going to happen? So, you know, I got to say my goodbyes now. Will you sign my America yearbook? You know, and it's like, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I have a sort of I have a, I have a big family and I I don't know if they're going to have Wi-Fi in the camps. So I was wondering, you know, can, can, will you be my pen pal? Can I write you a postcard? Um, You know, what if what if what if you guys just let us stay and you track us right with the registry? You know, think of it like Pokemon Go. You just have us geotagged and you know exactly where we are. And people are like, well, Hassan, that's kind of ridiculous. How can you make that leap? And it's like, no, no, no. no. Follow the, follow the trail. If you are registering people based on religion, think about the other times we've done that in history and how that ends up. And it was following the take of, all right, let's follow this logic and let's take it to a ridiculous slash sad point. Um, and that story was only possible through the take.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was like an invaluable, invaluable lesson that I've learned at the show. And it's something I continue to try to to try to add to the comedy that I do and the shows that I do. Well, if this thing is true, then what else will be true?
0: Were you able to impact anyone's opinion, their feelings on the matter, by by engaging them in this conversation?
1: What's interesting is there's a very sweet woman in the story. You can see she's a delegate, and um, she's very adorable. She has, like, a, a silly little hat on, and she was like... um. She's like, I, you know, I don't hate anybody. And I was like, you don't hate me, right? And she's like, no, I don't. And, well, and I was like, well, you don't hate Muslims, do you? She's like, no, I don't. Um, and she's like, well, and the thing is, I know you're one of the good ones. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, it's very, <laughs> your accidental racism is very adorable. And I was like, well, I want to let you know you're one of the good ones, too. You know, the last thing I want to do is just generalize all members of the GOP as being, you know, racist bigots, you're one of the good ones too. And um, what I found to be interesting in that is, yeah, it's funny and it's cute that this old lady's kind of racist, but she doesn't realize it. The thing that I wanted to show through that is actually, believe it or not, the people that are bigots, that are openly bigots, are few and far between. There was a very small percentage of bigoted people at the Republican National Convention. The majority were kind of ignorant to some of the issues that other people were talking about. By other people, I mean minorities, women, Mm -hmm. people of color. Um, And so when I would ask them about Black Lives Matter or I'd ask them about a Muslim registry, I would look them in the eye or ask them about building a wall or deporting uh, undocumented workers that have children here in this country. I would look them in the eye and say, I know you don't think it's a big deal, but do you think my life will be better after a Muslim ban? or after a Muslim registry, and they'd look at me in the eye, face-to-face, and be like, well, I never thought of that. Mm
0: -hmm. I never
1: thought about that. And that's when I realized, wow, like, you know, people like Trump or the GOP, they're preying on people's fear and ignorance. And at the end of the day, you can legislate against bigotry. You can say, hey, this is unconstitutional. You cannot do this. This is against the law. You can't deny service to this person because of their religion, race, creed, or class. But you can't legislate against ignorance. It's very difficult to do. And my mission is, you know, really to try to change people's mind just through my own story and through exposure. Mm -hmm. It's exposure and education. I think those are the only two things that will engender empathy between people across different walks of life.
0: I think some of the most insightful commentary on politics, race relations, civil rights—it um, comes from our humorists, our comics. You know, you being one of them, and we were talking about the take a second ago. Um, why do you think comedy has become so powerful as social commentary?
1: I think it's because the comedian doesn't have to toe any lines. We're not a representative of a state a government body, a company or an organization. We're basically serving as these court jesters that are on the sidelines of life saying, "Hey, we're just we're observing the game and this is what we see." And there's there's a lot of power in that in that honesty. Um and I've I've heard it from people after like our field pieces or our interviews, the politicians that I've talked to, They're like, man, the things you say, the things you say, man, we wish we could say stuff like that. I'm like, oh, you mean being honest? I think you should be that way. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think that's why I wish, I wish that the people that we are poking fun at, the governments and institutions and politicians that we're ridiculing, um, carried themselves with that same code. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So you're a Daily Show correspondent, you're a stand-up comic, you speak, and now you're touring the country with Homecoming King, which is the show about your life. It's not as if you don't have enough to do. So <laughs> why this and why now?
1: Yeah. The, the reason why I think, like, again, like this story to me is like really important and special is because um, – One of the things that, you know, John told told, you know, me, Jess and Jordan was that the the news and the news cycle, the stories we do on the show are very much like bread. He's like it ages like bread. So, you know, I'm making Donald Trump jokes or or we're talking about the RNC, you know, come November, hell, come January. Right. When we've inaugurated a new president, new president has taken oath into office. Those jokes for either Hillary or Donald Trump will now become virtually irrelevant, mm-hmm. right Bernie Sanders' jokes will be irrelevant, sure uh, Marco Rubio jokes will no longer have shelf life. He's like you you know you really can't go back and look at a a daily show headline piece from january twenty eighth two thousand five. Nobody's like trying to look through old episodes of the Daily show, maybe field pieces and stuff like that or when history repeats itself, but for the most part, no, but he was like also he gave us a piece of advice he's like try to make things that also age with time Mm -hmm. to go back to the Seinfeld thing believe it or not you can still watch Seinfeld to this day in its commentary on like life is still pretty like and it's still really funny right yeah to me this show and the story of my life and like the American dream and what that means and race and love those things still exist to this day and the reality of the situation is is here we are that thing that happened to me was 10 years ago right 10 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. But I really think to myself, after Orlando, after San Bernardino, after our continual, you know, uh, the continuous war in Iraq and Afghanistan and these things. If there's a Hassan Minhaj that lives right now and he's fallen in love with Bethany Reed. Do you think he'll be able to go to the dance with her again in 2016? I think those questions are still just as palpable and relevant now. As they were then.
0: Yeah.
1: And I do think that there, is a, there might be a Mr. Reed out there that's like, I don't know, man. This guy has this name and this weird name that I can't pronounce and I don't know what their values are and he wants to take out my daughter or vice versa, mm. right? So this, this, this culture of fear, it still exists to this day. So I think the story is just as powerful and just as relevant. The thing that grounds it and makes it timeless is that it's my story and it's not attached to a news headline. And that's why it's really important for me to tour it and to take it to places where, hey, I'm not just playing to um, an audience that, you know, is sort of like like-minded or all, or the audience like looks like me or, you know, or thinks like me. Yeah. You know, when we did it off-Broadway and you do it in front of a New York audience, it's a very New York theater audience. But to me, I want to take it to the country so that the Hasan and Bethany Reed's out there, they can watch it and, and see it. And what I've loved most about it is I've seen – Theater has brought out all age groups. It brought out kids in high school, kids in college, um, kids my age, and then parents. And they've all sort of plugged in with the story in different ways. And that's what's really awesome because it goes through these, like, different phases of, like, my life, from childhood, adolescence, um, adulthood, and then the present. And it deals with, you know, forgiveness and love and all of those phases.
0: One really awesome thing I saw on your your on your site, which is homecomingkingshow.com, is that there is an opportunity for people to submit their own stories. Has anything yeah. come of those?
1: Yeah. I mean, some of those stories were really really um really powerful. Uh I've had people talk about what I call doorstep moments, like these times in their life where they've sort of put themselves out the same way like when I was on that doorstep and, you know, was there to like go to the dance with this girl they've put themselves on the line and and then they haven't been accepted for who they are because of a myriad of different reasons and i've gotten letters and i've gotten stories from people that are saying hey i grew up in this town and um i'm gay and i fell in love with this person and then i put myself out there and publicly you know came out and and said that you know i want to be together i want to be with them and and i was sort of shunned away because of my sexuality or because of my race or because of my gender or because of A myriad of different reasons. And I think everybody has experienced that sort of uh, doorstep moment in some capacity. And it really – I'm really touched that it's opened people up to talk about these sort of stories in a a variety of different ways. That's been really awesome to see, that it's not just tied to like my narrative. It, It transcends race or religion and sexuality and stuff, which is
0: great. We are super excited to see Homecoming King, which will be in Bloomington at the Buskirk Chumley this Sunday. Um, where can people learn more about you and your show?
1: Go to HomecomingKingShow.com, and you can you you know you can see uh, reviews of the show and clips, and um, you can see the stories that people have submitted, and you'll also get like a really good idea of sort of the look and feel of the show. Um, you can see the art design that was done by Sam Spratt, who's an incredible credible. A painter and graphic designer, he has done uh, creative direction and artwork for uh, childish Gambino, Donald Glover, Chanel yeah. Monet, um, uh, logic, so many just amazing artists and he he really, really is incredible. and he did this art series called New Brown America. that was the the title of the sort of creative direction of the show. And you can see these beautiful um, Rockwellian Americana paintings that were inspired by real life rockwell paintings um but they were replaced with uh with protagonists of color in them so they feel like new american rockwells and they're really really beautiful and those are the things you can see on the site and you can learn more about the show but i'm really excited for everybody to see it
0: right thanks so much for joining us today thanks for having me all right well uh, we'll see you soon i'll see you soon I've been speaking today with Hassan Minhaj, comedian, senior correspondent for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and star of Homecoming King, which comes to Bloomington on September 11th. This is Janae Cummings for Profiles. Thank you for being with us.
1: Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.